But a little uh, refresher course, those of you who have been with us through this series, Are You Growing? We have a memory verse. So let's do our memory verse today, Colossians 2, 6 and 7. You can go ahead and read it along if you'd like. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 is our theme theme verse for this whole series. Let's do it together. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. One more time. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I think it is super cool that we do that, by the way. You may not. I'm sorry if you don't. Um, How many churches... Memorize verses together. I think that's a great practice for us to get into. Um, I was wondering, Michael Kopic, if you could just take that a little higher next time at the end. Thank you. Yeah, that, that, that'd be great. You may not recognize the name Charles Roberts IV, but you certainly know what Charles Roberts did, and you certainly remember the aftermath of his tragic behavior. In October of 2006, in the Nickel Mines School, in the heart of Pennsylvania Dutch country, Charles Roberts, who was tormented by decades of unresolved anger and guilt and pain in his life, Charles Roberts walked into that school and he took an entire room of innocent school children hostage. And he shot and he killed five of those children. I'm sure many of you recall the media reports a few years ago about this incident. These were kids with names and with faces who had extended families like we do. They probably had favorite pets, favorite teddy bears. They probably had favorite stories that their parents read to them at night. These were real kids with names and faces. Naomi Ebersol, age 7. Marianne Stoltzfus Fisher, age 13. Anna Mae Stoltzfus, age 12. Lena Miller, age 8. And Mary Miller, age 7. All of them died in that tragic event that many of you recall in Pennsylvania, Dutch country. You may not have known these names, but you know that they represent a community whose response after that tragic aftermath was a worldwide media story for days and weeks afterward. Because of this one thing, you remember that story Because that Amish country there, that that community of people, responded with that kind of tragedy, with forgiveness and grace and mercy. In the middle of an incredibly painful, tragic, difficult set of circumstances, those people responded with Christ-like, of all things, forgiveness. Were they wronged? Yes. Were they hurt? Yes. Were they angry? Certainly. But they chose to extend forgiveness 
despite being wronged, hurt, and certainly angry. Just listen to these kinds of reports. CNN reported that Marianne Fisher's grandfather, while standing next to that dead girl's body, instructed his own grandsons, we must not think evil of this man, Charles Roberts. He went on to urge them to forgive him. The grandfather of the sisters, Lena and Mary Liz Miller, agreed, responding to CNN's question about whether or not he had forgiven the killer by stating, facing away from the camera, in my heart, I have already forgiven him. There was an entire delegation of Amish folks from that community who visited the shooter's own family and said to that family, we want you to stay in this community and continue to live with us. Stay in your home here. That was a sentiment that was widespread throughout that entire community then. One man said, there is a deep desire throughout the Amish community to ensure that the members of our community forgive this man and his tragic behavior. One woman said that every family that I've talked to that's lost a child didn't speak of their own child without also expressing concern and sorrow for his family. That kind of forgiveness for them wasn't just statements to the press. This wasn't just public relations. This was compassion and grace in action. That Amish community, the same day the girls were killed, met with the family of the shooter to grieve with them because the man, Charles Roberts, committed suicide. The family of one invited the widow to the funeral. And at the funeral of this man who came in and took these kids' lives, dozens of people from the Amish community showed up to demonstrate their support. The question is this, what in the world motivates people to live and to act this way. How does an entire community of believers, people like us who have known suffering and pain, how do they become people who extend that kind of radical forgiveness in the face of tragedy? Here's how. They knew and they lived, and they acted upon the truth that we look at today, which is the big idea for this time together. It's this. Those who are growing in Christ-likeness are so keenly aware of their own experience of God's grace and mercy that they two things, freely and quickly extend Christ's forgiving love to others. Those are the two blanks in the handout today. Those who are growing in Christ-likeness are so keenly aware of their own experience of God's grace and mercy that they freely and quickly extend Christ's forgiving love to others. Freely because, think of those Amish folks in that community. Nothing anyone could have done would have made up for it. No amount of money, nothing that shooter's family could have done could have taken care of that pain and that loss. And quickly, because as we saw for them, instantly, 
They felt compassion for a man who was obviously tormented. Does that excuse his behavior? Nobody said that. Not one Amish person in all of the reports that I looked at said, eh, it's not excusing the behavior. But it's quickly defaulting to where we know we have been in our experience of God's love and grace and truth. Let's jump into Luke 17 here for just a few minutes and look at what this has to teach us. Here in Luke 17, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Now, if you remember a few months ago, we had a sermon series where we looked at Luke 15 for about four or five weeks. And in Luke 15 and in Luke 16, Jesus is speaking to the establishment of the religious leaders, the Jewish Pharisees, and the scribes. He was speaking to them. The disciples were there also. But he was speaking to all of them. And he says here in this place in verse uh, 1 of Luke 17, he says, Temptations to sin are sure to come. He's speaking to the disciples now. He's talking to his core followers. He's talking to us. So we pick it up in verse 1. He said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come. They're bound to happen. We all experience them. He says, But woe to the one through whom they come. Woe to the one through whom they come. You see, Jesus had been warning the Pharisees, in the previous chapters, but now he's warning his own followers. Woe to the one through whom temptations to sin come. He says in verse 2, It would be better for him that through whom the temptations come, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were cast into the sea, that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Okay, so I don't know about you, but I'm reading this text and I think, that's a little scary. (laughs) A millstone around... One's neck. Can you imagine the disciples for the first time hearing Jesus teaching about this going, are you sure that's what you mean, Jesus? You see, a millstone represented something that would have been for them like a mafia-style kind of death. We'll look at something in just a second here. He goes on to, uh, to, de- to uh, let me back up. Show the millstone picture. There we go. That's where I meant to go with this. This is a millstone. Uh, they come in various shapes and sizes. Some of them have a little bit of curve to them. But the basic gist is it weighs a ton. And there's a little place in the middle where you can see that uh, large piece of wood going through there. There's a circle in the middle. And sometimes uh, they would do actual... um, The kids are gone, aren't they? Actual uh, killing of people on ships by tying a millstone around their neck, having a rope in it, and throwing them over sea. It would look sort of like this guy. There you go. I'm not sure why that's funny. So Jesus, then, he says, in contrast to that guy who causes even one of God's children to sin, he says this, verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. He is giving the disciples here general instructions for avoiding being a temptation to sin. But then in verse 4, he gets even more specific. And he says, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. 
Interesting that it doesn't say anything like, you can forgive him. You have the power to forgive. It'd be a really great idea if you forgive. It doesn't even say, you know, you should really pray about changing your heart so that someday after you've got your act together and you're more like Jesus than you are now, then you can start to practice forgiveness. It doesn't say anything remotely like that. It's in what we call the imperative mood. It says you must forgive. Jesus is giving his own disciples a command. You have to. Another meaning of this word must is that you will. Growing believers will. Because they've experienced God's love and grace and forgiveness in their own life. So you can imagine why the disciples respond as they do in verse 5, where they say, uh, increase our faith. In other words, um, I'm not able to do that. Jesus, you're crazy, and you're pretty much going to have to do that for me. This is going to have to be a faith kind of thing. Now think about this for just a second. Jesus says it's better to be killed, you know, sort of mafia style, you know, like, yo, Vinny, get the millstone. It's better to be killed mafia style than to direct one of God's own children to sin. This phrase about his little ones isn't just about small. It's about his children, calling all of us his children. Jesus said it'd be better to be killed than to direct one of them to sin. And then he is saying here in verses 3 and 4 that we should have a contrast to that kind of life when we keep forgiveness from someone, Jesus is saying. When we keep forgiveness from someone, he says, be warned. You are like the one who deserves a millstone around his neck. Or the one who puts millstones around other people's necks. Jesus is speaking very strongly here. Because for all of us, the temptation to sin, the temptation when we have sin in our life, and we experience ex that, that frustration and that pain, that hurt, the temptation is to keep it right here. Right in here. That's where we want to keep it. I don't want you to know about it. I don't want you to see it. In fact, what we do what we do with our lives is we put up these walls and these barriers and these ways of protecting ourselves so that I don't need your forgiveness and I'm not going to give you mine. The problem is this. We go through life with sins and with hurts and with pain and we carry these things around with us inside here and they fester and they take root and they grow like an infection inside us. We are people whose motivations come from building walls of protection that keep us from being damaged again. Many of us, many of us will say things like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. The devil can get a hold of this forgiveness problem in our own lives. The evil one will use our fears and our perceptions of others to isolate us 
from them and from him. We want to keep it private. In fact, we are more apt to admit sin to God than we are to people because of this forgiveness problem. Why? We all know it's safer. We all know it's safer. That's why I'm going to keep my wall up. Fool me twice. Shame on me. That is why Scripture so clearly calls us to do business with one another in forgiving and extending grace to people. In face-to-face relationships. The disciples say, increase our faith because we have got to tap in to the only one whose example informs and reforms us. But we become, over time, people who continue to say things in our lives like, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. We put up walls and we put up barriers in our lives to ensure that there is no way I am ever going to be hurt again, which becomes there is no way that I will forgive. We orient our entire lives to avoid hard relationships, to keep out those who may withhold forgiveness or bring us pain. Friends, don't miss this. At the foot of the cross, while the innocent Lamb of God bears the infinite weight of humanity's sin and says, like we read, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We end up saying, I can't forgive you. What an absurd picture of our lives. where the infinite weight of all of humanity's sin, resting on Jesus alone, motivates him to say to you and to me, forgive them, when part of that sin is mine. And yet, I refuse to extend it to you. An absurd picture. Just days just days after the tragic shooting of those five school children in Pennsylvania, the West Nickel Mines School was entirely demolished. That site where he took those children was left as a quiet pasture. And a new school was intentionally built in a different location to be as different as possible from the original. A different site with different architecture, different aesthetics, even different style of flooring inside. It used to be called the West Nickel Mines School. And on April 2nd of 2007, exactly six months after that tragedy, the new school opened and it was called the New Hope School. Friends, what if our forgiveness made the news. Not necessarily the evening news or the paper and, you know, we don't really care if somebody comes across the news and said, hey, First Christian Church is forgiving. But what if our forgiveness for one another and for others 
makes news in people's lives. And the people of our community and the people with whom we work and the people around us notice. That's news. What if, what if instead of having to hear stories of forgiveness in the aftermath of tragedy, someone had the guts to speak to Charles Roberts and to have extended forgiveness and grace to him way before we hear about it on the news? What if somebody had had the courage to give him the kind of grace and forgiveness that they had experienced. Maybe, maybe he would have been a great father who adored his kids and family. Maybe Marianne Fisher would have made a great mother whose kids would have become agents of God's grace in the community. Maybe that could have happened if someone from a community exactly like ours began to practice some radical forgiveness with Charles Roberts. You see, this isn't just a pretend scenario on the news. There are countless people around us everywhere who so desperately need to experience the grace of God, some of whom we know and some of whom we don't. And you and I because of the cross, have the power to extend that kind of restoration and forgiveness to these people and to one another. And if we have experienced the cross and known that for our own lives, it is the natural result, Jesus says. He says, you will forgive. Growing people know this and they realize this. And so that's what we're trying to communicate and build here and cultivate a place where we are a people of forgiveness. If you're looking for a church home and you're an immersed believer in Christ, we would invite you to be a part of this community we're trying to build where forgiveness is one of the marks. Or if you'd like to come forward for prayer or to name Jesus as Lord, we ask that you would do that as we stand together to sing.